Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I'm going to say something that I know won't poll well. I love politics, and I love politicians. I've been hanging with them all my life, engaged in a running conversation that I often wished I could share with others. That's what The Axe Files is all about. I want to have real conversations, honest conversations, with my fellow practitioners in politics and journalism to go beyond the usual political speak and give you a richer sense of who they are, what they do, and what drives them. This is my first podcast, and who better to kick it off with than the least likely rock star in American politics, Senator Bernie Sanders. Bernie and I had a chance to talk about everything from his passion for the Brooklyn Dodgers to his surprising position on gun rights to the state of American politics and the American worker. Bernie's been given some fiery speeches, but in this conversation... Uh, which we recorded in the back seat of a van from O'Hare to the University of Chicago. I got to know Bernie a little better, and I hope you do too. Let me set the stage here. Sure. We're, uh, we're in a van hurtling toward uh, the University of Chicago for an event at the Rockefeller Chapel, an edifice that was built as a monument to the greatest monopolist, one of the icons of the Gilded Age, the last Gilded Age. Uh, John D. Rockefeller, and we're going there with Senator Bernie Sanders, the bane of the billionaires, the hot poker up the wazoos of the plutocrats. Uh, Senator, I, I hope this doesn't make you uncomfortable appearing in Rockefeller Chapel. No, not at all. That's, uh, I went to the University of Chicago, and I was just thinking that is exactly the building in which I graduated. That's where they hold yeah. the graduation ceremonies. Yeah. I know oh. the building well. Although this time, I, I, I have fears of a Phantom of the Opera type thing where the organ starts playing and we hear the ghost of Rockefeller. <laughs> if, if we do, we'll get you out of the building quickly. Um, talk to me about the University of Chicago. I, you know, in doing, in doing research for this chat, I found a photo of a tall, lanky, dark-haired fellow leading a sit-in. Uh, I don't want to overdo the research part. It's actually on your Wikipedia page. But uh, what? tell me about that. Tell well, me what, about what you were doing. What that was about is in the early 60s when I was at the University of Chicago. Um, it turned out that the university owned segregated housing. Uh, and I was part of a group called the Congress on Racial Equality Corps, which would, at that point was one of the most significant civil rights groups in the country. And what we did is we sent uh, couples in. Uh, uh, We would send a black couple in, and then we'd send a few hours later a white couple in to university-owned housing. And what would happen is uh, the black couple was told that, sorry, there were just no apartments available. And then two hours later, suddenly those very same apartments became available for the white uh, couple. 
and all of that ended up with a, a sit-in demonstration uh, at the administration office. First sit-in, I'm told, ever at the University of Chicago. Uh, that is my understanding. Um, and um, so that was significant and I think paved the way for a significant improvement of the University of Chicago's housing policies. Uh, later on, I and, and a number of other people also became involved in the issue of segregated uh, schools uh, in Chicago, uh, and we were involved in some demonstrations on that. But um, yeah, let me ask you about that. Talk about Chicago at that time. What was Chicago like? It was in the peak of the Daily Machine, right? Um, what? So you got thoroughly engaged in the community. I would say thoroughly engaged, but. Uh, you know, I did become engaged, and, and I think what I'll mention to the students today is that for me at least, um, I learned as much, if not more, off campus than I did on campus. I, I was a student there, I would say the same. But, was that your experience as well? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so, off campus, I became involved in the civil rights movement, in the peace movement, I learned a lot about democratic socialism. So, it sounds like you spent more time at, uh, outside the classroom than inside the classroom. Well, uh, let's be honest and acknowledge <laughs> that I was not one of the best students that the University of Chicago ever had. We've led parallel lives, and <laughs> I, uh, I'm in that same category. In fact, we have led parallel lives because my father was an immigrant from Eastern Europe. He fled the pogroms, your father, the Holocaust. Uh, I grew up in New York City, went through the New York City public schools. I grew up in that very kind of a left uh, activism, uh, you know, period in New York City. But tell me about how your experiences back there, because you didn't, you didn't just arrive out of the womb as a democratic socialist. You, 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 you. Maybe you did. Well, I'll tell you, uh, my family, you know, the neighborhood that we grew up in, I suspect, was ninety percent Democrat. I don't know if people voted Republican, but um, my family was not political. My brother introduced me to a lot. He was got involved uh, in the Young Democrats at Brooklyn College and would drag me out when he had to babysit me, would drag me out to meetings. Uh, so I learned a lot from him. He brought books into a house which did not have a lot of books. Um, what did your dad do? My father was a paint salesman who had left Poland at the age of 17, uh, dropped out of high school. My mom graduated high school and raised uh, the two kids. So we grew up in a in a three-and-a-half-room rent-controlled apartment in, in Brooklyn uh, in a pretty solidly lower-middle-class neighborhood. Yeah, I grew up in Stuyvesant Town, so in Manhattan, sure, sort, of the same, sort of the same deal. So when, when, you, when you got to the University of Chicago, were you already like deeply interested in social justice issues, politics? Or I wouldn't say deeply interested. I would say instinctually interested, you know. Uh, Why? That is a damn good question, David, and I've never figured out the answer to that. You know, not just for me, but for anybody. Yeah. But, you know, as a kid, I never liked to see the big guys pick on the little kids. You know how that happens in the schoolyard and all that stuff. So I kind of had an instinct, for whatever reason, uh, against, you know, powerful people pushing around less powerful people. But certainly that was not honed in any intellectual way at all. I really did not know a whole lot. Um, and at the University of Chicago, I think it's fair to say a lot of my ideas developed in class, off campus, uh, talking and learning from a lot of people. Just as I said, you were 
a bit of an athlete back yep. then. Uh, yep. Baseball fan too? Yep. Dodgers fan? Well, of course the Dodgers fan. What, what kind of question? <laughs> Grew up in Brooklyn? No. <laughs> Well, my my uh, my dad, when he first got here as an immigrant, the first thing he did was learn how to play baseball. He played with Hank Greenberg in the oh, sand wow. of the Bronx, wow. uh, and uh, so we were always at the ballpark. But he which was Pilgrims or we well, well we started there, but then Shay uh, Shay when the that's, because I was a little bit uh, younger, but we would but and we would go to Yankee Stadium. But my father always used to you'll I tell you because you'll appreciate it. He would refer to the Yankees as the portrait of corporate privilege. Well, it, it, it's, it's funny. Um, I mean, when the discussion began about the Brooklyn Dodgers were an enormously important institution to Brooklyn, going far beyond athletics and baseball. They were part of the fabric of our society. And it was when people talked about the Brooklyn Dodgers possibly moving, people didn't understand, kids didn't understand. What does that mean? They are the Brooklyn Dodgers. They are owned by the people of Brooklyn. How can it possibly be that somebody can move them? We really did not understand that concept. And, uh, you know, in Brooklyn at that time, uh, they would talk about some of the most hated figures uh, of the period. And they were people, they would talk about uh, Hitler, Stalin, and Walter O'Malley. Uh, but not necessarily in that order. <laughs> Walter O'Malley, of course, being the owner of the Dodgers who... The Ship them off to L.A. Right. Yeah. Is that what turned you against corp big corporations, <laughs> the, uh, well, the Dodgers well, moving? No, I wouldn't say that was the only thing. But, uh, <laughs> no, that was that was a brutal act, which impacted Brooklyn in a very significant way. Now, getting back to Chicago in the 60s, you were involved in SNCC. You were involved in a lot of... Not SNCC. We were involved in CORE. And what we did is we worked, you know... We mostly focused on local issues, but we provided modest financial support to our brothers and sisters in the South, people like John Lewis and Snake. And, uh, in fact, you went to the March on Washington, Yes, right? I did. So you heard Dr. King's speech. Yep, I was there that day. What was your, do you remember that at all? Oh, of course I know. You know. It was an extraordinary moment, uh, seeing so many people. Uh, and, obviously, King was a towering figure. Uh, and the whole day, you know, was the day that I will never forget. It was extraordinary. Now, the, the, as the 60s evolved, the war became the big issue. Um, were you, uh, did your activism uh, move into the anti-war space? Yep, yep. Uh, not a whole lot. I wasn't the most active uh, anti-war activist, but I certainly was very, very opposed uh, to the war in Vietnam. And... Uh, went to more than one demonstration in opposition to the war. And you applied for conscientious objector status back then, is that right? Yes, that's right. Did that? Did you get it? No, what ended up happening, at, at that point at least, the process was rather prolonged, uh, and what ended up happening is by the time it was finished, I was over the age at which you could be drafted. Mm -hmm. uh, do you con did you consider yourself a conscientious objector then? Because the status, you know, is about war generally, and you, you can't say I oppose this war, you'd have to say I oppose all war. Well, but my view was at that point is that, needless to say, I thought that war uh, should be the last resort. I was very, very much opposed to the war in Vietnam, absolutely. Let me ask you a question about this, because you're suddenly now a very hot candidate for President of the United States. Uh, if you were elected President of the United States, 
you would be the commander in chief. Mm -hmm. uh, how does how's that square with your 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 views, your views that were formulated back then, and your views that that you have now? Well, it squares in this sense. Uh, I voted against the war in Iraq uh, after listening to what Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and others had to Gulf say. Gulf Wars, right? You voted against the Gulf War as well? Yes, I voted against the first Gulf War, that's right. Uh, but in the war in Iraq, after listening to what these guys had to say, I concluded that they were not telling the truth. And if you go to my website or just go to YouTube and find the concerns that I had back in 2002, 2003, Sadly enough, yeah. much of the, many of the concerns that I have turned out to be true. Having said that, I voted for the war in Afghanistan because I thought uh, that uh, bin Laden had to be brought to justice. And obviously the government of Afghanistan, the Taliban, were not cooperating. I voted when President Clinton uh, did his best to try to stop the ethnic cleansing uh, that was going on in Kosovo. So my view is that a great nation like ours... Uh, should be prepared to use force, but it should be the last resort. I strongly support what the president is today trying to do in Iran, stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, but do it without going to war. So we have a military. That military may well have to be used on certain occasions. But I am the former chairman of the Senate Veterans Committee, and I have learned about the cost of war in a way that many people do not fully appreciate, the kind of suffering that those wars have brought about. So, yes, we have got to be prepared to use military force, but it should be the last resort. i got to tell you something, David. I get really amazed and saddened uh, to hear many of my Republican colleagues rather blithely you know, talk about, oh, we're against this agreement uh, with Iran, and we always have the military option. It's not going to be their kids getting killed in those wars. Uh, and I think, again, war, military action is always an option. It should be the last option. Should it, should, should it be that, the, uh, you know, one of the reasons that we all seem sort of isolated is you sort of hinted this from the, the cost of these decisions is that 1% of That's the population right. that is ends right. up fighting the war. Right. Should, should there be a draft? Should no. there be some sort of national uh, service that requires the burden to be shared? No, I don't. Um, no, I'm not in favor of the draft. But just in terms of the cost of war. Many people are aware that we lost 6,700 brave Americans in Iraq and Afghanistan, that many came home without legs and arms and eyesight. What many people do not know is that some 500,000 came home with post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury, and these are life-altering diseases, not easily cured, which means that tens and tens of thousands of families have suffered as a result of that war. Divorce rate, very, very high. Children impacting suicide rate off the chart. That is the cost of war. And before people talk about, oh, well, war is, you know, we can go to war, understand what that means. Yeah, I sat with the president as he made some of these decisions to send troops into battle and also when he got, when he went and greeted uh, uh, the coffins on, on their right. return at Dover. And I, I don't think that there's, by, by far, those were the most sobering moments. Are you prepared? to make those kinds of yes. decisions and deal with that? Do you yes. think about that? Sure. Look, it's, uh, this is a very dangerous and crazy world. I mean, we look at ISIS, uh, we look at Al-Qaeda, we look at the horrors uh, every single day. Uh, and, you know, we have a military for a purpose. Uh, we are in coalition with other countries. And by the way, 
I believe we have got to strengthen those coalitions. I am not a great fan of American unilateral action. Uh, I think we should be working as closely as possible with our allies and in countries in the Gulf region. Uh, but as I said, uh, we have a military for a reason. We are the most powerful military on the, in the world. And if it is necessary to use our military, I certainly will be prepared absolutely to do that. Let me just return to the narrative of your, uh, of your life a little bit. In the 70s, you were kind of a polemicist in Vermont, and uh, you, uh, you ran for office four times under the, the, the banner of the Liberty Union Party. What was the Liberty Union Party? The Liberty before? Union Party was a third party uh, in the state, outside of the Democrats and the Republicans. Uh, and in fact, um, it was a party uh, that came around, very small party, uh, that focused primarily on economic issues and on um, uh, the war in Vietnam. And those were the two main uh, motivating factors. And, you know, it's a party that had no money. Uh, um, I suspect raised at most a few thousand dollars, maybe not even that, and did not do any advertising or anything. But it, it I enjoyed my participation in it. You must have. You did it a lot. I did it. I ran for... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I ran for the Senate, and I got 2%, and then I ran for governor, and I got 1%, and then I ran for the Senate again against Pat Leahy, and I got 4%, and then I ran for governor against 6 I got 6%. And that you figured if you ran long enough, you could add up all those numbers and get to a majority? Yeah, I, that, somebody <laughs> told me that's the way it worked, but it turned out not to, be, not to be accurate. But then what happened is I kind of you know, gave up on that, and back in, then in 1981, uh, some, you know, how people often say people come up to you. Well, this was true, actually. People did. They said, you know, you got a shot to become mayor of the city of Burlington because you did pretty well uh, in certain of the wards in uh, Burlington. And I ran as an independent, uh, not as a third party. You've never run as a Democrat before, have you? This is like a new thing for you. That's right. I, never, <laughs> I have won the Democratic primary in the state. That's true. But I have never run as a Democrat. And um, so I won as an independent. Uh, by uh, 10 votes uh, and won three more elections. And I'm very proud of the role that we played in bringing people together in the city of Burlington. And I think most people would acknowledge that we helped transform that city and making it to one of the more livable, beautiful. 10 votes. So did you did you learn this from the uh, daily tradition here in Chicago of running for mayor that you, no, it wasn't you squeaked out what you needed? We weren't the ones who were, who were counting those ballots. It was, <laughs> it was the other side. Uh, so what did you learn from that? What that I experience learned a lot. of being mayor? No, I learned a whole lot. And it's kind of shaped my more practical political experience. And what I learned is, and the way we won that, is by coalition politics. That's a very old-fashioned concept, you see. What politics today is about is raising a whole lot of money, hiring consultants, and putting ads on television. That's not hey, the way... Hey, I used to make those ads. All right, I know. <laughs> Great people, but nonetheless. Uh, what we did is brought people in the community together. We brought the unions we brought women who really did not have much of a role in city government, brought young people. We brought neighborhood organizations. We brought low-income organizations. Uh, and we really did coalition politics. And we took on the city's machine. Uh, nobody, there was a machine in Burlington? Yeah, there was a machine. Absolutely, there was a machine. <laughs> and nobody but nobody. Uh, David, you would have been a rich person if you had... A bet on me winning that election. Nobody but nobody thought that it was possible, and we did. And I'll tell you something else that I learned, uh, not only about coalition politics, about working with groups like environmental groups who have their concerns, 
and the Burlington Patrolmen's Association, the Policemen's Union, we brought them all together. I'd say, okay, look, we disagree on this, that, and the other thing, but basically on the major issues facing our city, we are on the same side. And that is the same principle I bring into this campaign. But I'll tell you something else. Uh, between the election, we have, at that point, elections every two years, okay? And I won in 1981. When I ran for re-election in 1983, we almost doubled the voter turnout. Almost doubled the voter turnout. Why was that? Because we ran a city which paid... You were giving away things, weren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, something like that. Mostly because we paid attention to working-class wards and lower-income people. And those people said, you know what? Actually, Bernie and the government are doing something for me. We're going to participate. We almost doubled voter turnout. And when we talk about the problems facing this country today and the dismal, dismal, dismal turnout we had in the uh, midterm elections mm-hmm. last November, I think people are giving, giving up on government. They don't believe government represents their interests. They're saying, why do I want to participate in this charade? All right? It's not, not relevant to me. And what we have got to do is make government relevant to people. We've got to deliver for working people, for lower-income people, for young people. And when we do that, we create this relationship of working together, voter turnout goes up, and when voter turnout goes up, Democrats win. Republicans win when voter turnout goes down. So I did learn a lot uh, being mayor of the city. And, and, and then you went on to Congress, and you've been there for 25 years. Yeah. Um, in these experiences, what have you learned about the gap between, you know, Mario Cuomo said you campaign in poetry and govern in prose. Uh, what have you learned about the gap between uh, campaigning and governing and what governing demands? Well, what I have learned is, uh, and especially true in the last several months as I've been running around the country to just come back from Iowa, uh, is the reality as perceived by ordinary people in, throughout America is a very, very, very different reality that is perceived inside the Beltway. The inside the Beltway is way, way, way out of touch with where the American people are. So, for example, on the issues that I campaign on, which would be seen as very, very radical, undoable, incomprehensible within the United States Senate, not among the American people. Oh, of course we should raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Oh, yes, there's something wrong when the United States is the only major country on earth that doesn't guarantee health care to all people. Oh, yes, no question. We should have paid family and medical leave. Yes, our trade policies have been a disaster, and we need to reform them. Of course, public colleges and universities should be tuition-free. Of course, not a debate. The rich and large corporations should start paying their fair share of taxes. Out in the real world, people say, yeah, of course. Inside the Beltway, oh, my God, these are radical radical ideas. And the reason for that, obviously, is that what goes on inside the Beltway is heavily influenced by big money interest and corporations and large campaign donors. My friend Gary Hart told me something years ago that I found uh, the most useful advice I ever got an admonition, which is, just remember Washington's always the last to get the news. That's right. That's right. That is, he's exactly right. And and what this campaign is about is just picks up on, on Hart's point. And that is, change will take place in America, not when, you know, John Bader or Mitch McConnell um, wants to do something. Change will take place in America when tens of millions of people basically say enough is enough. This system is corrupt. The political system is corrupt. It is owned by the wealthy and the powerful. 
the economic system is corrupt. Virtually all of the new income and wealth is going to the top 1%. And we're going to change it. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that in terms of the fight for the $15 an hour minimum wage. That didn't come from the United States Congress, trust me. That came from young people who work at fast food restaurants who are saying, this is nonsense. We can't make it on seven and a quarter an hour. An hour. They're going out on the streets. And I've been proud to go out on the streets with them. And they're standing up. And then suddenly, other people say, well, these guys are right. And then you have Seattle voting to raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. And L.A. voting to raise the minimum wage to $15. And they're spreading all over the country. So change comes at the grassroots level. Uh, and that's what I believe, and that's what this campaign is about. Do you poll? Have you, do you take? Polls? We have not done any polls up to now. Have you taken polls in your in the past? Yes. When I ran in uh, 2006, we ran against a very, very wealthy guy, one of the wealthiest guys uh, in the state of Vermont, and we did poll, and we may have polled previous to that. And what do you do? Do you, do you see these polls? Do you read? What do you do with these polls? Well, mostly uh, the poll in 2006, David, was not used uh, to shape what I say, because basically I've been saying the same thing for 30 years. (laughs) I don't need a poll to tell me what to say. What the polls did help us on was we were being attacked with some very ugly 30-second negative ads. I've never run a negative ad in my life. How's that? Yeah, well, that's that's pretty remarkable. Yes, in this day and age. You feel you'll get through this whole campaign? Well, I surely hope so. I surely hope Let's so. Let's say yes or no, though. Well, it is my hope that I will never run a negative ad. I never have after all of these years, but I, you know, we'll see. Um, but let me just yeah. let me just say what what the, we did use the polling for is that to try to figure out how to respond, not with a negative ad, but you know, when you're being attacked every single day as being one of the worst human beings in the history of the world. Uh, that's a pretty heavy charge. That was the, that was the least <laughs> of the charges. It really, really got really negative. Um, but you know, uh, you know. So you got to figure out which of those kinds of ugly comments actually resonate, uh, which do not. And where you go from there? You know. But here's the thing, because I've been through. You know, I was part of a magical campaign in 2008. Yeah, sure. And it was very much. It stirred some of the same kinds of hopes and expectations uh, that your campaign is. I remember looking out the window and arriving at events that were as large or maybe larger than the ones that you've experienced. And I remember uh, Barack Obama turning to me and saying, you know, it's going to be really hard to meet people's expectations because uh, the reality of governing is, is, is harder than the, than, 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 sure. the, uh, expecta- than, the, than the articulation of people's aspirations. So, and you must, after 25 years, let me give you an example. I agree with you on single payer. Uh, I've have a, I have a child with a chronic illness. I have a very strong feeling about this. Uh, but if you did poll, what you would find is there's a, actually a great deal of ambivalence out in the country uh, about this, right. and that's why you, you were there. Uh, you and I were both there when we were fighting for uh, the uh, Affordable Care Act, yep. and we couldn't get your all of your Democratic colleagues even to support a public option yes. within the Affordable Care Act. Right. So how do you, I understand, we came in with great momentum, it was like a, it would seem like a landmark election, and we ran into all those barriers. Well, let me So s- how, how is, under the Sanders administration, okay. how is that going well, to Well, as you know, you know, I am personally very fond of Barack Obama. Um, this sounds like a Trump thing. I like him a lot, but... 
not, not, no. <laughs> uh, Obama came to Vermont in 2006. A huge turnout. Uh, the campaign, campaign for me. I did my best in 2008 and 2012 to get him uh, elected and re-elected. Um, but here is an area where he and I have a political disagreement. I mean, we disagree on a number of issues, but this is a political disagreement, a tactical disagreement. You were part of one of the great campaigns in American history, period. It was a brilliant campaign. What I think is, and you can argue, we argue with me about this, is that a mistake that Barack Obama made, A, because he's a very decent guy, he thought he could walk in to Capitol Hill in the Oval Office and sit down with John Boehner and Mitch McConnell, the Republicans, and say, look, I can't get it all, you can't get it all, let's work out something that's reasonable. Because he's a reasonable guy, he's a pretty rational guy. Well, as you know, I expect you do know, these guys never had any intention of doing seriously negotiating and compromising. Their job from day one was to obstruct, okay? That's issue number one. And I think it took the president too long to fully appreciate that. I think he's a better president today than he was four years ago, as a matter of fact, because he now understands that. But here's the second point where I have a difference in tactics with the president. I have no illusion, none, that fighting for a Medicare for All single-payer program, fighting for tuition-free public colleges and universities, fighting for paid family and medical leave, raising the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour, rebuilding our crumbling infrastructure, progressive taxation. I don't have any illusion that I'm going to walk in, and I certainly hope it's not the case, but if there is a Republican House and a Republican Senate, that I'm going to walk in there and say, hey guys, listen, I'd like you to work with me in raising the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour and ask your campaign donors to start paying their fair share of taxes. And by the way, tell the Koch brothers that we're going to trans transition our economy away from fossil fuel. And I know you will agree with me on that because you're really smart guys. It ain't going to happen. I have no illusion about that. The only way that I believe that change takes place is when, and I say this not rhetorically, uh, but this is what I believe in my heart of hearts, is that tens of millions of people are going to have to stand up and be involved in the political process the day after the election not just the day before the election. What Obama did was, with your help and other people's help, run a brilliant campaign, a grassroots campaign. But I think that campaign has got to be maintained in an unprecedented way the day after the election and in terms of part of the governing process. I cannot do it alone. Barack Obama cannot do it alone. And I think that was a mistake that he made, which I hope not to repeat. A lot of the folks on the left were um, unhappy about the Affordable Care Act because it didn't include a, a public option. They right. thought it was a betrayal. Uh, did you feel that way? You voted for it. I ended up voting for it with some hesitation. It's much too complicated for me and for the American people, by the way. I ended up voting for it after Harry Reid worked with me um, to put uh, $12 billion into community health centers all over this country, which now means that 4 million people have access. In my state, 25% of the people in Vermont get their primary health care and their dental care, mental health counseling, and low-cost prescription drugs through community health centers, which, by the way, has been one of the real success stories of the Affordable yeah, Care Act, yeah. while it doesn't get a lot of attention. And the president, by the way, was very, very uh, supportive uh, of that. But um, uh, my point is this. There are 15 million or more people who have health care right. today 
who didn't have it. I run into them all the time. Yes. People who say, "Gee, this saved my life." Yes. Uh, would would it have been the right thing to say no uh, to helping those people uh, because it wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, fulsome enough? Well, it wasn't. I voted for it, so I, I answered. That question yes, but I mean, my point is, doesn't ago. governing require those kinds of decisions? Of course it does. Every single day, when you get elected to office, you know, the first thing you know is you're not going to get everything you want, uh, and that you have to compromise. When I was in the House, in fact, there were some years where I got more amendments passed on the floor than anybody else in the House working with Republicans on issues where there was a commonality of interest. So of course it does. But what I'm trying to say here, David is if you look at the world and you say, okay, i got a right-wing Congress and I'm a progressive president. All right, what do we do? That's one way to look at it, and mm-hmm. you got to look at that. Mm-hmm. But there's another reality, is what happens if the views that I hold are supported by the vast majority of the American people and my Republican opponents' views are only supported by a small minority? That has got to be brought into discussion as well. It does, but what if your views aren't held by a, a, a vast well, majority? Uh, like on the, the single-payer issue, I, I think it makes total sense. Mo- the majority of American people don't think that. Then what do you do? Well, that's a good question. And then you do what you do. you got to educate the American people and you do the best that you can do. But there are issues where, in terms of raising the minimum wage, majority of Republicans support that. Mm-hmm. There are issues where family and medical leave, off the charts, there are issues where we have to ask the rich to start paying their fair share of taxes, widely supported. So, yeah, I'm not saying that every position that I advocate has significant majority support. Most of them do. And where they don't, you've got to continue the fight by educating people and bringing people along. Now, I don't mean to be provocative in making this analogy, but, uh, you know, you hear a lot from the other side, uh, the sort of, uh, you know, the Ted Cruz world, uh, that the problem with the Republicans is they've been too willing to compromise, that they have to stand on conservative principles, rally their base, put pressure on. And it sounds a little like the same argument, which is it's better to be uh, pure than no, to no, be no, That's exactly... No, you didn't hear me say that. That's not what I said. What I said is that if you are good at politics and you have 70-80% of the people behind you, in issues like raising the minimum wage or rebuilding our infrastructure or family and medical leave, you should win those fights. Mm-hmm. And it's not good enough to sit down with Boehner and say, no, I can't support all. Okay, I guess we're not going to do it. Then your job is to figure out how you mobilize that but 70, aren't the, 80%. Aren't the incentives misaligned in our political system? Because for those members in the House who have you know, strong Republican districts and only fear primaries, the, in- the incentives are not in place to uh, reward them for, for doing the what, what you would say is the right thing? I mean, isn't, that a, isn't there a structural problem? Well, the structural problem is that while gerrymandering has gone on forever in American politics, uh, you're right in suggesting, I think, that the Republicans have taken it to a whole new level uh, and in a very undemocratic way, and that's an issue we have to deal with as well. But let me repeat my point, whether you agree with me. I don't okay. know. You may, you may not. But here's my point. Okay. My point is that the views that I am talking about represent, I believe, the views of the vast majority of the American people. The views of the Republican Party, which you can boil down to, let's cut Social Security or maybe privatize it. Very few people believe that. Let's give huge tax breaks to billionaires. 
I don't know anybody in the real world who believes that. Let's cut Medicare and Medicaid and federal aid to education. Most people don't believe that. So the political dynamic of the moment is the views that progressives hold. I'm not saying everyone, but most of the views are supported by the vast majority of the American people. The Republicans hold views that are supported by their large campaign donors. The dynamic is what Democrats have got to figure out is how we bring our people together to make the Republicans an offer they can't refuse. Do you ever take, have you ever taken positions that, uh, that uh, in which you felt you had to compromise to reflect your constituents? You know, Barney Frank uh, famously said, the only politician I ever agreed with was myself the first time I ran. <laughs> uh, and you get his point. Uh, and I, I think of the issue of guns. Uh, where you, you, you reflect your constituency. You haven't been uh, down the line, certainly on the NRA. You voted for an assault weapons ban. You voted for... Uh, oh, really? Down the line on the NRA, I've been opposed vigorously by the right, gun people right, in right. the state of Vermont. So but, let's but, not talk but, about but, being but, down the line. But, but you've also you opposed the Brady uh, Yeah, the because Brady it law. did not have at that point an instant background check. I come from a state which, by the way, has had Democratic governors and Democratic senators whose views on these issues are the same as mine. Yeah. We come from a state... I don't raise it in, a, in an accusatory way. I'm right. just trying to get to understand. And, in fact, the votes that I took coming from the state that I come from were fairly courageous votes. I voted to ban certain types of assault weapons. That was not necessarily a popular vote in the state of Vermont. I thought it was the right vote. I voted for instant background checks, and I voted to end the gun show loophole. And I kind of think, actually, that where we are with the gun debate in America is you've got two sides shouting at each other mm -hmm. and not listening to each other, mm -hmm. you know? And I think coming from a state which has virtually no gun control but which is sensitive and understands that guns are something different here in Chicago than they are in Vermont, I think I can play a very effective role in Would bringing Would you have had together. the same posi uh, position if you were representing Brooklyn? That's a good question, and I suspect perhaps not. I don't know. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Back in the 90s, you served under Bill Clinton. Yes. Uh, and there are a lot of initiatives of his that you didn't support that he would call his signature initiatives. Right. Welfare reform. Right. The Balanced Budget Act of, of right. 97. Uh, you know, the repeal of Glass-Steagall. Right. Uh, Trade the, issues as well. Right. NAFTA. Um, no, I think on many, look, I have a lot of respect for Bill Clinton. I think he did a lot of very good things. Uh, but I made some very, very important issues. He was dead wrong. On the, on the deregulation of Wall Street, he worked with right-wing, really right-wing Republicans like Alan Greenspan. You remember that famous picture of Bob Rubin and Alan Greenspan and Larry Rubin called Masters of the Universe? I know it was Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine, or something like that. They deregulated Wall Street, which in my view, in my view, I know people disagree, helped lead to the crash of uh, 2008 and uh, bringing us the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. That was dead wrong. The trade agreements. Frankly, if George Bush had been reelected, we would not have had NAFTA because Democrats would have not had to cave in to a Democratic president. In my view, the trade agreements, NAFTA, CAFTA, PNTR with China, have been a disaster for this country, have lost us millions of decent paying jobs. Clinton was wrong on those issues. So, yeah, I did oppose him on some major initiatives. Now, you've been very assiduous in this race about not criticizing Hillary Clinton. You've, you've been invited to do so on many occasions. I've seen you in, in many, many interviews. But on substantive matters, um, primary campaigns are about who best represents the values and traditions and uh, 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 of a party. 
Um, do you have substantive differences with her that would suggest to you you would be a better Absolutely. tribune? Of course. I mean, I would not be running if that were not my belief. What I have said is that I think one of the reasons so many people get turned off to politics today is these cheap, ugly, personal attacks, uh, these right. horrendous negative ads and Absolutely. stuff. I don't do that stuff. Right. Okay. But I would not be running, obviously, if I didn't have differences with Hillary Clinton and with the other candidates. So I think the first and broadest issue of difference is people have got to make a judgment that in a moment in American history where we have a massive level of income and wealth inequality, where we have corporate America and Wall Street exercising extraordinary power over our economy and the political process, which candidate has the history and the ideas today to stand up to the big money interests? That is a very important fundamental question. And you think you question. do and she doesn't? I think that I do. I'll let the voters decide about well, implicit Hillary in what you're saying. Look, yeah, implicit in what and I'm saying. And you've said course. you don't have pa you don't take you don't have a pack. I do not have a not super taking, pack, right? Your, your super pack, I should right. say. And you're not taking in money from large corporations. That's correct. I never have. Um, she does that. She does that. But and do, do you think that's a compromising thing? You yeah, I do. Uh, look, you know, I know every politician's. Oh yeah, you know, yes the. Billionaires are giving me huge sums of money. They don't want anything. They just, they love democracy. But, you know, they're just giving me all this money for fun. Well, I'll let the voters decide how uh, true that is. But my history in taking on Wall Street, in calling for the breaking up of the major financial institutions, in repealing Glass-Steagall, in voting against the war uh, in Iraq, in being very clear that if we're serious about climate change, and transforming our energy system. No, we cannot support the Keystone Pipeline. I know that Secretary Clinton recently adopted that position. I was there from the very beginning. Trade agreements. No, the TPP is a bad idea and a continuation of bad uh, ideas. The USA Patriot Act, I voted against. Uh, the war in Iraq, uh, a, a huge vote. I listened to the evidence uh, from Bush and his administration. I voted no. Uh, Secretary Clinton voted yes. The, um, there's a lot of discussion now about Vice President Biden and whether he'll get in the race. He's a friend of mine. He's a friend of yours. Yes. Um, you have surged into, you know, a, a pretty strong second place here in these national polls. You're ahead in some polls in Iowa, ahead in all the polls in New Hampshire. Do you ever find yourself with all this Biden talk saying, what about Bernie? What's, what's wrong with me? <laughs> Look, the last thing that I worry about is what the inside the Beltway folks and the pundits think. Uh, in many ways, uh, my campaign and I personally function outside their framework of reference. And I know they find it hard to believe that we are doing what we're doing. Because they talk to each other. You, you know that. I mean, you live in that world yeah. where these guys, each one repeats what the other guy has it's to say. It's an echo chamber. It's an echo chamber. Well, I get out in the real world. That's what I've done. I've done more town meetings in the state of Vermont than any elected official in the history of the state. I do those all over the country. I talk to real people. I think I have a sense of what's going on. So our success, while it is faster than I thought would have happened, what I would have told you four or five months ago when we're thinking about running is I think these ideas will resonate with the American people. I think the American people are sick and tired of a corrupt campaign finance system owned by billionaires. They are tired of an economic system where almost all of the income and wealth being generated today is going to the top 1%. It is happening faster than I thought. That I will concede. But what you know, the Wall Street Journal has to say, or the New York Times has to say, 
I don't stay up nights worrying about too much. The, you said that it's happened faster than you. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of astonishing. I mean, and I, I, I'm not making an ageist point here, but you're a 74-year-old guy, and we're headed to a university where there are 2,000 kids waiting to hear from you, and there were, there were many, many more who couldn't get in the room. What the heck is happening? How is it that you're the Pied Piper for these, for these kids? But it's not just the young people. It is the young people, it, and, and I'm very gratified by that. I think they're uh, young people are, generally speaking, idealistic. Um, they are rejecting, I think, a lot of the materialism, uh, and this every person for himself or herself uh, way of life that many of their parents have accepted. Uh, they want to see a better world. They are concerned about ending discrimination in all forms. They are very concerned about the issue of climate change. They are very concerned by you know, definition about making uh, higher education affordable because many of the young people are going to leave school deeply in debt. So I think the... But uh, O'Malley says these, all these things as well. Why are they following you? Well, I don't know. You'll have to ask them. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> are you at all surprised by the reaction? Well, I've been surprised in general... You know, look, when we're going to be in I mean, how many selfies were you in before oh this whole God. thing started? Jesus. Don't talk to me about selfies. <laughs> and don't ask me for a selfie, David. Uh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that. Uh, I have uh, my agents taking photos. You can't even <laughs> see them uh, right now. Let me ask you one last thing. Yeah. Um, you you kicked around a lot in the '70s before you got elected. You were writing. You were speaking, but uh, the you know, you're basically your your history of employment is largely as a public official? Well, not, not, yes and no, no. Before I became uh, mayor of the city of Burlington, I ran a very small, very small uh, nonprofit called the American People's Historical Society. And what we did is produce film strips. You remember what film strips were? I do. Before video for young yes. people. What they were, these photographs, and you had a beep, went to the next photograph. And we did some uh, histories of the state of Vermont. We did some on New Hampshire, did some on Massachusetts. And we you know, made a living. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed doing that. I did one on the life of Eugene Debs. And I suspect <laughs> if I had not won the race in mayor, that's kind of doing historical video is probably uh, what I would be doing. But your today. life experience has been different than that of, uh, and, and not, you know, you haven't spent a lot of time in the private sector. You haven't spent a lot of it, it hasn't been very varied in that regard. Is that a liability? And what is it about you that 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 would give people a sense that your experiences have been so broad that you well, can... They have been broad. When you are the mayor of a city, I mean, I've been a mayor, I've been a congressman, I've been a United States senator. Uh, and when you're a mayor, for example, you get involved in everything. You learn how to, uh, what the most cost-effective way is to repave streets and sidewalks. Uh, you learn about housing and how to construct housing. You learn about child care. You learn about the needs of senior citizens. You learn about health care. You learn about prescription drugs. You learn about a whole wide variety of issues. And I think my life experience has been a being involved with the people, being a candidate who kind of comes from the ranks of the people, not from Wall Street, not from uh, the ivory tower, not from corporate America. And I think that is a good attribute to have. Would you be, what do you, what do you hope to do here? 
let's stipulate that you could be president of the United States and you may not be president of the United States. If you're not president of the United States, will this have been worthwhile? Yeah, that's yeah, been an extraordinary experience, an extraordinary experience. I mean, getting to meet great people in states all over America, uh, meeting all kinds of people. You know, by the time this is over, <laughs> there's not going to be a group in America uh, that uh, I have not met. And, and to hear people's concerns, how people view the world, uh, is, is, it's been uh, just a wonderful experience. And what impact do you think you can have, even if you're not the nominee, do you, do you think you're impacting the debate? I think we are. I mean, I think uh, the issues that we are talking about, income and wealth inequality, the disappearance of the American middle class, the need for us to join the rest of the world in terms of family and medical leave, in terms of a national health care program, in terms of public making public colleges and universities tuition free, in terms of <laughs> racial justice, you know, in terms of immigration. Yeah, I, I think when you are running for president, as you well know, you have a platform uh, you have a bully pulpit uh, that can help force discussion on very important issues that often people would not like to talk about. Well, Senator, thank you. Uh, you're the first guest on this podcast, The Axe Files, and I can't think of a, a better person to, uh, to kick off this series. So your uh, public awaits. But uh, <laughs> thank you so much for being with us today. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.